Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord on this beautiful fall morning. I'm glad you chose to worship here at Grace Community Church on this day. I had a horrible coughing fit just before I came up here, which might not be good news for the front couple of rows, but I hope uh, that it will be okay uh, during the service this morning. Now, if um, you had to answer this question, which of the following statements was made by a theologian? What would you say? A, there is no God. B, my God is a God of love and would never send anyone to hell. C, salvation comes to those who repent of their sin and trust Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. D, all of the above. E, none of the above. What would your answer be? The answer is D. That might surprise you. Uh, Probably most of you or many of you would think if you just, you you know there's trickery involved because it's the first of the sermon. (laughs) But if it weren't for that, you might would say, oh, C is the answer to that. But the answer is truly D. C is the only correct statement of the three assertions about belief in God. Well, I believe that that's the case anyway, and I'm certain that almost all of you, if not all of you, would agree with me. But the fact is, all of us are theologians at some level. In any statement we make about God, even someone who says, I don't believe that there is a God is a theological assertion of sorts. Now, if someone said define theologian, we would say that it's someone who studies theology or studies about God, about his attributes, his relationship to the universe and and, and his creation, all of mankind. But, But truly, we are all theologians at some level. What we believe about God is important. It's not only a matter of life and death, it's a matter of eternal destination. Just think about that. Eternal destination. Our Western civilization in this day and age thinks less about life after death than just about any generation that's ever existed in history because so we have life so good even in these difficult economic times. Life is good for most of us economically, and it's good in so many ways for all of us because of the advantages we enjoy in this day. So we don't think about eternity that much, but what we believe about God is a matter of eternal destination. And as a Christian church, we believe that we know about God through His Word, through the Scripture. For the last several weeks, we've been talking about the authority of Scripture and the importance of being able to work our way around in this book to know a little bit more uh, about the book than we have before, the importance of knowing the big picture, the importance of, uh, of interpretation preceding application, and the importance of context when it comes to interpreting Scripture. We thought about all of this in the larger context of the series that we're in the middle of, which is the 29th chapter, as in the 29th chapter of Acts, where God's story is still being written and we are a part of His story. But once again, we only know what His story is if we go to the place where it's told. 
We believe that God revealed himself through creation, through our consciences, through Jesus Christ, and through his word. What would we know about God if it weren't for this book? All we would know is what people thought up about God. So, <clears throat> Scripture is crucial in our understanding of, of God. But if someone were to say, I mean, all of our beliefs come from right here, but if someone were to say, what do you believe? We couldn't say, wait just a minute, and then start in Genesis 1 and say, do you have a few days, weeks, maybe? I'm going to start, I'm going to tell you what I believe, and then read through. So, it's been the practice of Christian groups and, and in the church, particularly to bring those beliefs down, distill those into a, 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 a relatively small number of points that are put in a creed or a, or a doctrinal statement. This morning, we're going to look at the first point in the doctrinal statement of Grace Community Church. Sean is going to preach next week. There are seven of those. We're looking at one today. Sean is going to preach next week. He may get through all of the other six, or he may just get through one. The next point is about the Trinity. All those who uh, think that Sean will get through next week, sit on this side. All those who think he won't make it all the way through, sit on this side. Both of you, if you, you know, the, the two of you. And we're, we're thinking of one point today, so, uh, you know, I'm not busting on Sean any more than I'm busting on on myself. In fact, we read the Apostles' Creed earlier. We're going to read the Nicene Creed in just a moment. We're going to stand together and, and read that. And I wanted for us to read our doctrinal statement, which doesn't read quite like these creeds do, but it's really our creed. It's what we believe. It's what we consider to be the most important biblical points in our day and time. But there's just, it's just not time to do it and all that needs to be said about our first point. Um, the, the Apostles' Creed was one of the first formal doctrinal statements of the church, the one that we read a little earlier. Actually, it, it began somewhere uh, late in the 2nd century, somewhere around A.D. 200, but it was developed over the next 500 years. A creed serves that same purpose of a doctrinal statement. I mean, a, 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 a creed is a summary of a whole system of belief. Think about that for just a moment. A creed is a summary of a, of a whole belief system. So you would assume that, that when writers of, of a creed or a doctrinal statement gather to think about what they want to put in this, that they would give great care to the words. If you're trying to bring the truth of Scripture down to this, this is the most basic, fundamental, foundational thing that we believe, you would think that a lot of care would be given, and true, that's, truly that's the case. Throughout most of church history, creeds have been read or recited in churches. In fact, how many of you grew up, or you, even as an adult, you've been in a system where the Apostles' Creed or something like it, the Nicene Creed was quoted every week. Anybody? Okay. Quite a few of you. Did you get the value of that? Did you appreciate that, or did it become just sort of routine to you? It's, it's, th there is great value in, in reciting one's beliefs with, with the body every Sunday. It can have enormously positive results if you allow it to, others, of course, just say, okay, let's do this. We just do this every week. Now, we have obviously chosen not to recite creeds 
each week. But we, we have to agree with Kevin DeYoung who said the only thing more difficult than finding the truth is not losing it. So when we talk about hell, it's not a popular subject today. It's not a popular topic. We talk about an eternal place of punishment. We say the same thing Billy Graham said in his early years. But he doesn't say it in his later years. Lots of people lose a portion of what they believe to be true when they're young. I'm not busting on Billy Graham. The Lord has used that man greatly. Well, I'm busting a lot of people and saying I'm not busting them this morning. But <laughs> Creeds help to remind us of what we already acknowledge to be true. The truth found in Scripture is that important. Now, Creeds and doctrinal statements serve the purpose of, of, uh, of identifying the particular truths and the beliefs of a church or a denomination. But it's important to remember that most of these creeds were written in response to error, doctrinal error or heresy that was being taught at the time. And you're going to find that element in our doctrinal statement. In the very first point, you're going to see that we're responding to a doctrinal error of the day. Our text this morning is going to be Psalm 19, but our primary focus is about statements that are summaries of belief systems in the Bible or of the Bible. So this morning, rather than standing and reading our text, Psalm 19, we're going to stand in just a moment and read the Nicene Creed. We've already done the Apostles, now we're going to read the Nicene Creed. But I want us to, to, to look at this and, and understand how all of these things all of these creeds came to be. It was written, the one that we're going to recite, and you can already tell today there are different versions of these creeds. And so um, the first Nicene Creed was written at the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325 when the church gathered to refute the heresy of um, the uh, Jesus Christ being begotten by God and not being... Uh, deity, not being one with God. He was created by God. Arius, uh, the, the heretical theologian, said there was a time when he was not, when Jesus did not exist. God created him. The Father created him. So they gathered together. That, that battle was fought, really, all the way through the 4th century. By the end of the 4th century, 381, A.D. 381, they gathered at Constantinople and put the finishing touches on not only the deity of Christ, but also on the Trinity. And so uh, these creeds were written to establish doctrine. And this doctrine was, was established in response to heresy. They didn't have a doctrine of the Trinity before the 4th century because they didn't need a doctrine of the Trinity. Everybody just believed it. But then when people started saying, well, I don't believe Jesus was really God. Holy Spirit's not part of, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he is a, an extension of God, but it's not really God. So they came together and they developed these creeds. So let's stand together, if you would, and we're going to quote the Nicene Creed. And as we go through, look for the, for the ways that the writers were responding to the heresies of the day. We're going to read the AD 3, well, one of the AD 381 versions. 
that help clarify our beliefs about the Trinity. So let's go. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us a vision of that day when we will be one with you. We pray that your word would come alive to us and that we might not only see Jesus, but be partakers of the divine nature which is just beyond our ability to even comprehend. And be one with you and the Father in the, in the way that we can, as Jesus prayed in John 17, knowing that it, we don't become God, but because of Jesus' great sacrifice for our sins and because that you have called us to yourself and to your family, we enjoy enormous enormous blessings may our focus be on those and not the things that are all around us that distract us tempt us please us discourage us lord may our focus be on you in your word in jesus name amen thanks and be seated well you'll recall when we started uh this series we acknowledge that we as a church are in the middle of God's story most of us tend to think that we're living our own stories in fact in fact we we don't necessarily help that when we we say in evangelical circles we say just a great way to witness is to tell people your story it's true that it's your story but really it's God's story and we're playing a role in that particular story it's an important role, but it's his story. His story began in, in, in Genesis 1, as far as we're concerned. He existed, of course, from eternity back. That one I can't go. I can think about eternity future. I cannot think that God never had a beginning. I will go much crazier than I already am, which is pretty far down the road. So, uh, but but he's, he, 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 t- he introduces himself in Genesis 1, 1, just simply by saying, 
God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's like he walked off from, from off stage. He walked to the middle of the stage and he said, this is the way it was in the beginning. He doesn't give an apologetic uh, argument for himself. He just says, I, I'm God. I created the heavens and the earth. Late in chapter 1 and then it's expanded in chapter 2, we see the absolute pinnacle of God's creation, which was man and from man, woman. In chapter 3, we read the sad story of Adam and Eve's rebellion, resulting in the fall, not only messing up our lives, but messing up all of creation. The next time you hear about a natural disaster, think this is a result of the fall. Get it in your head. This is a result of the fall. When people say, why would God do that? Say, this is a result of the fall. This is Adam and Eve's sin. And and the longer I go, the more I find myself in the garden with them. It's not just that I, I was passed down their disease. I participated in their disease. I participated in the fall. And it's all a part of the fall. But the incredibly great news is that Jesus redeems us from all of this destruction. Those who come to the cross and believe that He sacrificed His life in payment for our sins, satisfying the righteous wrath. It's so much deeper than that, but I'll stop there for right now. Satisfying the righteous wrath of a holy God, a good God, by the way. Not a mean God who's just, just looking for somebody to beat up and you better... Stay out of his way. No, he's a good God. It's just that he's holy and righteous. And so Jesus stepped in the way of his wrath. And when we hide behind him at the cross, we repent of our sin and say, I cannot do this on my own. Please forgive me for trying to get to you that way. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Then we are brought into his family, redeemed. And one day he will restore all of creation. And those who are redeemed to this place of perfection, it'll be just like the Garden of Eden, except that it'll be exponentially better because we'll be singing the song of the redeemed. So we've gone over this before, but it again sets the stage for where we're going. And if you're new, that gives you a little idea of where we, from the place from which we've come. This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 19. And and we're just going to read this text. I It's not typical for what we do here, but we're going to read this text and then we're going to continue thinking about creeds and especially the first point of our doctrinal statement. But but there's a reason that this is our text today. Notice how God reveals himself in a general way to all of creation. And then he comes to a far more specific revelation of himself to his people in the written word of God. There are two other places, at least in the New Testament, we're told about the way that God reveals himself to us through, through, through our consciences and, and, and especially through Jesus Christ. God is both transcendent and eminent. Transcendent means that he is high above and unapproachable by us. And when we, some people think of that and they say, okay, well then God really doesn't care that much. It's like he sort of set the thing in motion and he's sort of off doing his own thing because he's too big to work with us. But then the eminence of God through Jesus Christ shows that he is close by. Eminence means, eminent means close, close at hand. 
And so Jesus, and God is close to us through Jesus Christ. He revealed himself through Jesus. You'll talk more about that at home group uh, tonight. But I want you to see this in uh, Psalm 19. And then at the end of Psalm 19, we read it earlier. David's been putting these verses up through these last few weeks. Psalm 19, uh, during our time of, uh, of worshiping through giving. And it moves ultimately toward the conclusion of application. We've talked about the importance how interpretation precedes application. It's just as important to note that once we read God's word and we have knowledge of the truth, he expects us to apply it. He expects us to, uh, uh, to, to praise him, to trust him, and to obey him. No, no doubt, knowledge of the word without obedience is a dangerous proposition. It's a dangerous place to be because we can become very self-righteous when we are that way. I, 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 am, I am not only, I'm, I'm beyond amazed, I'm stunned at the number of people who like to use this book as a beating stick. And this book was meant for me... <laughs> To, to, to read and apply. And of course I have to tell truth to other people. But to do it humbly. Recognizing that um, I am in just as much trouble as anybody else. When it comes to who I am before the Lord. And so Psalm 19. We're going to read through this. You do, do not need to stand. And just um, I want you to look for those things though. How he reveals himself. Generally, then specifically, and, and, and specially to those who know him, and, and then ultimately his expectation. Or the natural, what should be the natural response for the believer to apply his word. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Look at all these Words, communication words, speech. He's telling us something in his creation. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. The sun rises and it sets, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Wow. Does the word do that for you? If somebody said, look, two choices, million dollars or the Bible, which would you take? 
this guy said, I'd take the word any day. And this was, um, none of the psalmists, this is a, a psalm of David, none of the psalmists, but particularly David, had a particularly easy life. <laughs> uh, he said, it's, it's, it's better to me than, than, than any of that. But he did have great riches. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And then this verse 14 that I wouldn't be surprised if some of you pray rather frequently. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I really don't like the idea of, of reading the text and then moving almost immediately from it. But, but the unique nature of, of the theme of this place in this series requires that we do so. We affirm our commitment to the word as articulated in Psalm 19. It is God's word, in fact, that is our focus this morning and is the subject of the first point of our doctrinal statement. The Grace Community Church doctrinal statement comes on page 5 of our Constitution and Bylaws. And and I would encourage you, if you haven't read that in a while, to read it. Read the Constitution. It is well written. It's, It's a great document that tells what we believe as a church. Sometimes, you know, people come to a church and say, Why'd you do that? What's that? What, what is that about? Well, read the Constitution. You'll, you'll get a better sense of what the, this church is about. Uh, it, the doctrinal statement comes after an introduction that, that, that states the reason we exist as a visible local assembly of believers Uh, at Jesus' church in God's kingdom. Also a summary of basic principles of who we are and what our purpose is in God's story. And as we've been saying all morning, the doctrinal statement, or simply stated as Article 3, doctrine, is a summary of what the founding fathers of Grace Community Church believed about the Word of God. One of those founding fathers continues serving as an elder here, and others, several others are members of our church and serve in various ways at Grace Community Church. And we wholeheartedly agree with them about the most important beliefs of our body. Let's review this first foundational statement of what we believe as a church. We believe the Bible in its original languages is the inspired, inerrant Word of God and is the final authority for what we believe and how we behave. What God revealed in the autographs, the original documents, the, one, the, 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 the things that, that Luke and Isaiah and, and Samuel and Moses and, and Jude, what, those, what they wrote as they wrote it down, we believe... What God revealed in the autographs, uh, the original documents of the Old and New Testaments, He has, through His providential protection, preserved from corruption during the process of transmission so that the 66 books of the Bible that we have today are the Word of God. Can you tell what kind of care was taken in writing these words? The first Four words of this statement are huge. We believe the Bible. We do. P. 
people tell you, you will tell you you are absolutely nuts for, le- for believing that this is truly God's Word. We unashamedly say, we believe this book is God's Word to us. God's Word, period. Not to us. It's God's Word. We're not ashamed of it. We believe that it tells us everything we need to know about the triune God and how we're to relate to Him. Now, I'm going to guess that over the last three to four weeks, at least I'm going to hope so, (coughs) especially if you've been in a home group, that this book has opened up a little bit. I know that some of the stuff that we've been talking about may have seemed rather basic to some of you. I hope that others of you who have sort of been intimidated by this book, and it is an intimidating book when you first just start to look at it, I hope you feel a little more confident that you are able to grasp it and, and understand it and work your way around in it so that you're able to apply it. And, and that your confidence in, in your ability to do so it means that it's not a bigger task than you're able to handle. Maybe that's just such an intense desire in my heart that I'm, I'm trying to will it into your heart and mind. But let me say emphatically, You can know, you can understand Scripture. Everything? Mm -mm. Nobody's ever going to get it all. In fact, this book is so beyond all. It's eternal. Even if you know almost everything, you think you know everything there is to know, you're going to look one day and you're going to say, I never saw that before. I've I've never seen that before. It's one of the things that excited me when I was just a young Christian at 18 years of age. I, I, I thought it never entered my mind that I might not be able to understand it. In fact, it was just like, whoa, I'll never get understand all of this book. And that was exciting to me. It's like I'll always be able to be learning in Scripture. All right, let's keep going. We believe the Bible in its original languages is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. In other words, when Scripture was was written, it was inspired by God and it is without error. Now, that's not making the claim that our translations that we have today, and I'm going to go a little further in this, so, so hold on to your horses before you start saying, what are you saying? It's not saying that we don't believe there are there, you know, some, maybe some tiny errors in, in the translation that we have. It's saying that God, when God led men to write the books that we that ultimately were agreed upon to be Scripture by the Jewish leaders of the, in the Old Testament and the, and the church leaders in the New Testament. We believe this is God's Word. Now, <clears throat> these leaders, all they were doing was pretty much affirming what, the, <laughs> what God's people had already determined in their hearts and minds. This is Scripture. All the councils that met to talk about, well, not that many councils, but, but, but when Paul's writings and Peter's writings, some of those in the New Testament days, the Gospels were in circulation. The church just knew, they said, this is what God says to us. This is writings of the apostles or those who were closely connected with the apostles. Um, and this, you know, this is just bogus. It is. There were some books that almost made it into the New Testament, but they said, ultimately, it can't stay here because there are too many discrepancies, errors. These are just bogus. We're going to 
talk about that more in just a moment. But I want to first say something about the word inerrant. It's a word that's only really been showing up (laughs) in doctrinal statements the last 20, 25 years. You may have found it back before that, but it's big in in, in a lot of churches. In the late 18th century, um, theologians, many theologians said that modern man, modern scientifically minded man, will not be able to accept Scripture with all its supernatural claims, with all of its claims about miracles and, and, and things that happen, people rising from the dead and stuff like that. So they said we need to demythologize it. We need to take all of the, the myths out of here. And, the, and, and so we see that the miracles in Scripture, Jesus feeding the 5,000, that has spiritual value. It's a metaphor for, for how God just takes care of his people and you know, things like that. But it didn't really happen. These theologians sought to cast doubt on the claims that the books of the Bible were written by the actual people who, said, who claimed to have written them. Man, the first five books of the Bible, they, they assigned several different groups of authors to write in them. And there was actually a Bible somewhere in the, in the t- early 20th century that had different, it was color-coded. And you know, like one verse might have three different groups of people having written it, and somebody just sort of pulled it all together. And, and that's now, uh, uh, this is what Moses claimed to have written, but he didn't really. Isaiah, two at least, three probably. And you know what? You know why? Because a lot of what Isaiah said could only have been known after the Babylonian captivity. The problem with that is, in Isaiah 45, God says, I'm going to let, I'm going to tell you something, Israel. When you go into captivity in Babylon, there's going to be a a man, he's going to be my servant. He's a pagan man, but I'm going to use him. His name is Cyrus. Has any other God revealed ahead of time what he's going to do? How utterly cynical to say that somebody wrote that later and claimed that it was God saying, I'm telling you what's going to happen ahead of time. You get what I'm saying? You follow what I'm saying? So this was a big deal. And it has continued to this day, although, frankly, some of that stuff is on the wane. Time and time again, there have been attacks on the, uh, against the reliability of Scripture that, that, that threw and throwed doubt on everything the Bible says and claims. Now, the greater issue in the last 15, 20 years or so has not been the miracles. Look, we're in a postmodern era, as Sean described the other day. It's really hypermodern. It's the logical conclusion of, of modernism, the idea that everything must be proven. It must be proved scientifically. Uh, empirically. So now we have people who, it's not a problem to say, I believe in the miracles. We, we all be- believe that. I mean, heard um, Nicholas Sparks on the radio the other day. He's going to be writing a program about angels, you know? I mean, he's going to work on a television program about angels. We've seen all the angel shows the last many couple of decades and there's a lot that's everybody wants to be spiritual this day and really at first it seems like wow all of a sudden people believe that God exists and that but we went from believing nothing to believing everything so now it's just you know whatever whoever God is for you but one thing you better not do is to say that there's only one way you you better not say there's only one way 
John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Don't have a problem with the fact that he fed 5,000 people, you know, with two fish and five loaves of bread. I do have a problem saying that Jesus is the only way. Are you trying to say that all these people who are so good and, and believe very <clears throat> strongly in their particular beliefs that are not connected to, to Jesus in the way that you believe, you say that they're going to go to hell? They don't like that. And they don't like the fact that you say homosexuality is wrong. They don't care about the fact that you say heterosexual sex that's outside of marriage is wrong. They just, just hear homosexual and they, ah! They don't, uh, they don't, so universalism, gay marriage, by the way, we got a vote coming up that, that we don't talk about votes very often, but this is an issue that's directly related to the Bible, so we'll be talking about it a little bit. <laughs> we are very careful about politics from the pulpit, but this is important, what's coming up. Um, in, in May, I believe it is. So... All of, the, all of the claims of exclusivity uh, people in, in, in this era don't like. You're saying that Jesus is the only way, and then, then they start to say, and come on, Jesus died on the cross because God was mad at sin? That's, that's akin to celestial child abuse, is it not? Oh, my, I, I just can't even imagine having an answer for that. I, I've got enough to answer for. Well, even so, quite a few people continue to question the accuracy of Scripture, although really, they're becoming increasingly irrelevant. That's not the issue. But still, it's an attack. There's an attack on Scripture. Satan attacks it every way that he can. And many of the people who started Grace Community Church had direct interactions with those who questioned the accuracy of much that is written in the Bible. Thus, the church's stated belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. Wayne Gruden says this about inerrancy. He says it's, that we believe that Scripture in its original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is false. Now, it would take a long time to answer the picky questions about inerrancy, such as, what about the psalmist in our text saying that the sun rises and sets? The earth is spinning, you know. Sun doesn't go anywhere. Sun's, oh, come on. We talk about the sun rising and setting, right? Look, sooner or later, either you're going to believe that this is God's word without error, or you're going to look for ways to prove that it's not accurate, which, of course, absolves you from much of the responsibility that God requires of us in his word. We believe it's totally accurate in its original writings because it's inspired of God. As we saw a few weeks ago in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's breathed out by God. It's the very breath of God. Interesting, isn't it? Scripture is inspired. It's breathed out. Breath. Hebrew word, ruach. Same word for spirit and wind. And the word of God and the spirit of God are almost inseparable in Scripture. Now, the reason that we use the term original writings is because there was a, there was a process to get from the original writings to what we have today. Samuel... Um, Mark, all of the people who wrote in the Old Testament wrote, and these writings were read, and they were standing right here. And over here, 
a lot of people copied what they were writing. And from that, more and more people copied what was being written. Now, we have thousands of documents, especially for the Old Testament. I mean, New Testament. We have thousands of documents, many dating back as early as the the second century, uh, A.D. 150, somewhere along in there. But they don't all agree. And there are lots of reasons that, that a word gets changed here or there. People start to want to put a little editorial um, comment in there, and so they change the wording just a little bit. And then you've got a group of people who have to decide which are the best texts for the Greek and for the Hebrew. And from that, we have our translations today. Now, let me ask you a question. If we say, if we believe what we say, that God created the heavens and the earth, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, do you think that God is able to preserve the text from here over to here? If he's not, what are we doing here? Are there teeny little, like a number error or a word out of place? Or Yes, I think all scholars would acknowledge there are possibly a few teeny little things, but every single one of them would say they wouldn't be able to fill a page, and then none of them have anything to do with major doctrine. So why didn't God allow us to have some of these original copies? Or the original writings, not copies at all, but the original writings, why not? Well, I don't know if you've noticed that God's people have, have had a habit through the years of, of making an idol out of something good. Can you imagine if the Catholic Church got a hold of those writings? They would be worshipped. And it might not just be Catholics worshipping them. Protestants might be the same way. That doesn't really happen. Look, I've been to St. John's Cathedral in Rome. And my friend Joe, Joe... Uh, Hootenzieker, who is one of our missionaries, says that on holy days like Easter and Christmas and other particular days, the lines are blocks and blocks because if people can crawl up on their knees, and we're going to see this in the movie Luther in, in two weeks on Sunday night. Please be here for that if you can. If they can do it on that day, they miss purgatory altogether. And I was there. I took pictures of them crawling up on their knees. Wasn't a, wasn't a big crowd because it wasn't a holy day. <clears throat> so, I, I, I think that's just one of, the, one of the reasons that God didn't allow us to have any of the original But we've got manuscripts that are very close, and they're so close. Thousands of manuscripts. What have we got? Something like four manuscripts of Homer, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and we, 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 nobody had cast any doubts on that whatsoever. We've got thousands of documents on the on the New Testament and the Old Testament, and we, we find things like the Dead Sea Scrolls don't even have time, and I should really stop while I'm behind because I'm getting some of you more and more confused, I know. But, the, but we can have complete confidence in the accuracy of Scripture, and, and as much because God says, well, more so because God says, I am the God, this is my word, every word is perfect, and I expect you to respond to this. Is that a circular argument? Well, when God's involved, we, we either accept it or we don't. So, that's the reason for the term, the original writings. And, 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 and what we have is, it makes absolutely no theological difference whatsoever from what was 
originally written. Well, I said we could spend a long, long time right here. And as we end together, though, I want to read a portion of a letter that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in 1936 Nazi Germany about the authority and the beauty of Scripture. He wrote this to his brother-in-law, who was as liberal theologically as as Bonhoeffer was conservative. And this comes from Eric Metaxas' excellent biography of the 20th century martyr. It is, is a fantastic book. In fact, let me just show you. This might surprise you. How many of you have read or are reading this book? All right, quite a few of you. Quite a few. It it is fantastic. Here's what Bonhoeffer says in this letter. Quote, first of all, I will confess quite simply. Now remember, he's writing this to his brother-in-law who doesn't believe. He's a modernist to the max and thinks that Scripture, to say this is really all from God, come on. Man's involved. Whenever man's involved, there's going to be error. First of all, I will confess quite simply, I believe that the Bible alone is the answer to all our questions. And that we need only to ask repeatedly and a little humbly in order to receive this answer. One cannot simply read the Bible like other books. One must be prepared really to inquire of it. Only thus will it reveal itself. Only if we expect from it the ultimate answer shall we receive it. That is because in the Bible God speaks to us. In other words, Bonhoeffer was saying, I believe the Bible is God's word, and without that belief, this book really doesn't mean much of anything. Let's continue. And one cannot simply think about God in one's own strength. Only if we seek Him will He answer us. Only if we will venture to enter into the words of the Bible as though in them this God were speaking to us who loves us and does not will to leave us along with our questions. Only so shall we learn to rejoice in the Bible. If it is I who determine where God is to be found, then I shall always find a God who corresponds to me in some way, who is obliging who is connected with my own nature. If I am the ultimate judge of this book, then I'm God. But if God determines where he is to be found, then it will be in a place which is not immediately pleasing to my nature and which is not at all congenial to me. This place is the cross of Christ And whoever would find him must go to the foot of the cross. This is the message of the Bible, not only in the New, but also in the Old Testament. And I would like to tell you now, quite personally, since I have learned to read the Bible in this way, and this has not been for so very long, it becomes every day more wonderful to me. I read it in the morning and the evening, often during the day as well. And every day I consider a text which I have chosen for the whole week and try to sink deeply into it so as really to hear what it is saying. I know that without this I could not live properly any longer. I put liver up there, didn't I? I didn't. Uh, Sorry about that. (laughs) Well, my liver wouldn't function. (laughs) End quote. Think you have it tough? 
How would you have liked to have been one of the few public figures speaking out against Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany? Dietrich Bonhoeffer found strength in the Lord, and he found that strength through the Word of God. This is a precious book. It is valuable beyond anything we can imagine. We take it for granted often because there are so many of them. We always have access to one somewhere close. I do anyway. I've got them everywhere. Read this book. Fall in love with God. Fall in love with the Word because when you do, you'll be falling in love with Jesus. Obey it. Apply it to your life. And you'll find yourself over and over coming to the place where God's love was ultimately revealed to us. The pinnacle of God's love at the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.